It's time for East Coast Hustle with your host, Reba Magulik. Brought to you by GovTech, your government technology insurance company. Check them out at GovTechInsurance.com. And by Accelerate Solutions, providing enterprise security, digital transformation, and strategic consulting. Hi, I'm Reba Magulik, and welcome to this episode of East Coast Hustle. Okay, here's a quote from today's guest. Imagine a corporate culture of commitment, accountability, and authenticity where people learn from mistakes, quickly adapt and innovate, relationships are solid and productive, and what used to be difficult conversations are routinely held in mutually beneficial ways. A little on our guest, Chalmers, a popular TEDx speaker, two-time best-selling author. Since 1995, Chalmers has been engaging in powerful conversations with thousands of CEOs and business owners. He has chaired a CEO private advisory board, has had over 20 years of experience as a certified executive coach, and is a lifelong student of leadership. Chalmers Brothers has clients nationwide, large and small, in a variety of industries. He lives in Naples, Florida with his wife of 35 years and came to us today from Knoxville after working yesterday with a group of 70 leaders representing six organizations in the Knoxville area. Chalmers, thank you so much for being here today. We are so honored to have you in the studio. Thank you. Thank you, Reba, for the invitation. It's wonderful being with you. I mean oh, it. absolutely. I mean it. Well, I want to start off by asking you, how did you get into this line of work? What was the catalyst for you? It was very interesting. My wife and I were married one year. This was back in 1987. Mm -hmm. And some friends of ours went to a weekend workshop and would not be quiet. And I'm talking, they would not be quiet. And you guys got to go. You guys got to go. It wasn't like selling soaps <clears> or anything, was, not, was it? No, no, no. <laughs> you guys got to go. And I, my thought process was, number one, I'm not really sure what a workshop is. Yeah. Number two, I'm pretty sure I don't need one. Right. And number three, I was thinking, if I haven't heard of this already, how good can it be? And Reba, finally, they said, look, we'll pay for you guys to go. And if you don't think it's worth it, don't pay us back. Wow. Well, they got my attention. Long story short, we went to a weekend workshop and I have to say it changed my life. It was my introduction to the world of ontological coaching. Okay. The company was called Education for, for Living, and it was in Baton Rouge. Okay. And from that, what happened to me then? A couple things. I thought uh, about midway through the workshop that mm -hmm. my relationship with my wife was a 9.5 out of 10. We were copacetic in every <laughs> way, right? All yeah, that stuff. you're a winner. I, I realized <laughs> halfway through the workshop, it's a 9.5 if 10's right here. But what if there is no 10? So what if I had artificially limited the single most important relationship in my life and the kicker had been utterly unaware I was doing this? That cost me two hours in my head in the workshop. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I also discovered that I actually did not see things the way things were. Hmm. I was in my mid twenties. I was convinced Reba that if you didn't see things like I did, you were stupid. <laughs> I mean it. I, we and, all secretly think and that. And nobody, it's interesting, <laughs> nobody ever taught me that, right? Yeah. That was never, ever a part of any curriculum, but I genuinely felt that the way I saw things was the way they were, mm -hmm. and I got the rug pulled out from under me. And I, 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 I did ultimately, after this, after this experience, I happened to look back at a wedding video that we had on VHS. Recently? Uh, back in the day. No, no, this was not, not that long after this workshop. Okay. And I had learned some things, and I was embarrassed at, 
at what I was saying. I was embarrassed at how... At your wedding? No. I, I was looking at the video yeah. after I had this workshop. So okay. the video was a couple years old. And I'd been involved in this work for a while, and I just, in my mind, I saw myself as really, really arrogant and completely... Sometimes wrong, but never in doubt, right? I was, <laughs> I was completely convinced that I had objectivity. And this body of work was really the first time in my life I was introduced to the possibility that other people of goodwill mm -hmm. can and do see things very differently than I did. Mm -hmm. And that, that was a shift. And then I stayed with this work a little bit more with this same company. Ultimately, in 1995, it led me to the Newfield Network in Boulder, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I had a one-year program, Reba, called Mastering the Art of Professional Coaching. Okay. And that was my transition to the business world, right? And so when I finished that program in December of 95, all I have been doing in my life since January of 96 is sharing my version of this body of work with leaders and teams and organizations of all sizes and shapes. And my entire, my entire life has been shifted uh, from this. I was originally with Anderson Consulting, turned into Accenture. So yes. my first nine years out of grad school, I was with those guys doing traditional uh, consulting work. Management consulting, Management yes. consulting work. And when I got finished with this program, everything was different. So mm -hmm. everything I share now, none of, none of it comes from that background. All of it comes from these organizations that introduced me to a very, very, what I consider to be a life-altering way of understanding myself and way of understanding language. It's an interesting, you know, both of my books, the, the first title is Language and the Pursuit of Happiness. The other one is Language and the Pursuit of Leadership Excellence. There's an obvious theme here, right? Yeah. And so the difference, the difference between the traditional way of management consulting, leadership consulting that I was originally involved in, mm -hmm. and what I learned from these guys has to do with this. And so if I can, may I share with you a little bit of kind Please. of kind of what this what this work is. Um, there is a giant premium in the work I do on self-awareness. Okay. So I have a little metaphor called a big eye in the sky looking at a stick person. It's meant to indicate you taking a look at you, me taking a look at me. That's what happened to you. That's what happened to me. And that's my starting point for all the work I do now inside organizations because the notion is my main objective, no matter what we cover, tools and techniques and uh, approaches, my main objective is to support people in becoming a more powerful and a more competent observer of themselves. Mm -hmm. And the reason we focus on self-awareness, number one, is that you cannot change another human being. I cannot change. The only person we can change is ourselves. But you can't change what you don't notice. Right. You can't change what you don't see. If you're not even aware of if it. If not even aware. Yeah. And another basic claim is this notion that we are not hermits, which means we already do big chunks of our life with and through people. Mm -hmm. Work, obviously. Family, obviously. Mm -hmm. Civic, church, with and through people. So the way that we dance with people matters. The way we interact with people matters. And obviously, organizations are composed of people working together, mm -hmm. hopefully to produce the desired outcome. One of the questions I lead off with in my work, and I've done this a lot, and I love this question. I ask a room full of leaders, as a leader, what do you get paid to do? Of all the things, now I say, look, everybody here does 10,000 different things. The question I'm asking is, of the 10,000 things you do right now in your job as a leader, uh -huh. what would you say sitting here right now are the most important one or can, two or three? Can I take a stab at what I think Absolutely. the answer might be or what the answer you might receive? Absolutely. Profits. Absolutely. Profits, number one. 
I got to manage the bottom line. A is, is that what you are? You There's an expression, hear? no margin, no mission, right? <laughs> so obviously we have to be profitable. They also talk, as you might imagine, with things like, well, I get paid to shape the culture. Yes. I get paid to drive execution. I get paid to groom the next generation of leaders, mm -hmm. right? I get paid to continuously improve processes. I get paid to create um, innovation, adaptability inside the organization. Mm -hmm. I say, yep, uh, guys, all these are great. All these are great. Now, what? let's imagine I have infiltrated your office and I'm walking around, sneaking around, watching you do all the things you just said you get paid to do. I'm watching you drive profitable outcomes. I'm watching you shape the culture. I'm watching you create wonderful teamwork. I'm watching you elicit creativity, mm -hmm. right? So the question is, what do my eyes actually see you doing as you're doing that? Mm -hmm. I'm watching you lead by example. I'm watching you shape the culture. I'm watching you drive execution. And when we actually think about it, what I would see you doing as you're doing that, I would see you as a leader engaging with other humans, right? talking and listening. And so Reba, leaders get paid to have effective conversations. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> leaders get paid to have conversations that produce one outcome and not the other. Right. And my experience is, this is so close we don't see it. This is so obvious we can miss it. It, it is. It really seems so obvious when you put it in those terms. Leaders it's about get, conversations. It's about conversations. I like to say it this way. Leaders are conversational architects and conversational Interesting. engines. Okay. Getting results by virtue of the conversations they have and how they have them. Mm -hmm. And so the segue or the transition is, look, Given the centrality, as we've just talked about, mm -hmm. of conversations for leadership effectiveness, and deeper than this, given the centrality of conversations for accountability, the centrality of conversations for innovation, mm -hmm. the centrality of conversations for customer service, for goodness sakes, right? now I suggest it is beneficial for us to spend some brain cells looking at language. Language, and that's, that's why this, you have this that's exactly, here that's exactly on both it. titles. Because you of gotta... the centrality. And, and so, okay. as we talk about language, right, the question I like to ask as a tee-up is, if you were to ask 100 people or 100,000 people, what is language? What is language for? What will the giant majority usually answer with? Words. Words, tool for communication, or some variation of that. And Reba, my experience is that it's such a, the, the notion that language is a tool for communication is such a widely held way of looking at language. Most people do not hold that as a way of looking at language. They hold it as a definition of language. Interesting. It's an interpretation. Interesting. And so my claim is this. If language is a tool, uh -huh. it is a tool you cannot put down. Okay. <laughs> or at least you cannot put down without rigorous practice, and we call this meditation. Okay. Right? But if language is a tool, it's a tool we can't put down. The interpretation that I got taught by both of those organizations, and that is central to both of my books and central to my work inside companies is this. Language creates and generates, it does not simply describe. Language, Can you repeat that? Language creates and generates, it mm -hmm. does not simply describe. So let's talk about some examples here to okay. make sure we're on the same page. Yes. If I say, Reba, you have lunch with me tomorrow at 12 noon, if you say yes, <laughs> we have just invented a tomorrow at 12 noon that five seconds ago was not going to happen. We generated a future we're not outcome. We're not just driving anything. We're making something happen. Right. Think about every time in your life you ever said the word yes. Mm -hmm. All right. So the notion is think about every single time in your life 
when the word yes popped out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. Here's the question. If all of those times instead you had said no, would your life be different? Oh, how powerful. How yes. powerful. We wouldn't be sitting here. No. These doors would have opened back then. You'd have moved in the world this way and not this way. Yes. One of my favorites, and, and in my work, Reba, I offer this to people. I do have some new things I want to share with you. Okay. But part, but part of my job, I want to be a professional reminder. A professional reminder. I want, I want we re could all use one. I want to remind, <laughs> and I, I say, look, I'm going to remind you guys of some things that you do know and maybe frame them or package them in a way that you can more effectively apply them okay. in real life. And so this notion, another example, how language creates, is a baseball story. Mm -hmm. After a big game, two umpires sitting around talking, and the first umpire says, look, Joe is a fabulous umpire. There's balls and there's strikes. He calls them like they are. Mm -hmm. Second umpire says, no, Joe is a great umpire, but there's balls and there's strikes. He calls them like he sees them. At this point, Joe walks up and says, uh-uh, y'all both wrong. He said, there's balls and there's strikes, but they ain't nothing till I call them. Oh, how interesting. When he says strike three, you're out. Yes. Reba, in my work, I ask a room full of people. I said, this question is for everybody sitting here today who is either married right now <laughs> or who has ever been married. <laughs> and here's the question. Is it different being married than not being married? Hmm. And it's, it's not a trick question. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's yes, like, it's different. It's different legally. It's different socially. It's different sexually for most of us. It's different right. financially. It's different. Right. So the obvious question that we ask is, how did we go from being not married to being married? How did that happen? Words. Somebody said something. Yes, language. Somebody said something. And in that moment, it's not trivially different. It's not marginally different. Uh-uh, it's really different. It's dramatically different. But we speak ourselves into the world. Mm -hmm. We speak ourselves into the world. And so I'm not suggesting we don't describe with language. Mm -hmm. Of course we do. What I'm saying is that is not all that we do. Right. And for leaders who get paid to have effective conversations, learning something about this not all that we do side of language can be very beneficial. Absolutely. Because I can see that. All of us, I'd like to say it this way, all of us already, we're producing big chunks of non-physical but very real results out of how we wield this tool. Mm -hmm. We're in Washington, D.C., one question, how was the United States of America created? So what is there, not too far from here, under the glass, in the <laughs> archives, right next to the Constitution? Right. This country was declared into being. Mm -hmm. Now, there was work to do after that, yes, but without mm -hmm. that declaration, we have no country. The I declaration asked, was important. It was huge. It created, mm -hmm. it didn't just describe the grievances against the king. Mm -hmm. It created a context where something was now very likely to happen and something else was not nearly as likely to happen, continued colonial life. Right. As we think about it, right, um, you're, you're a business owner. Many people here are. One question is, how were all corporate entities created? Our Articles of Incorporation. Yes, and if you read mm -hmm. it, there is a 100% chance you're going to com come across a, a version of this phrase. We shareholders, and get ready, here it comes, <laughs> do hereby... Declare. Declare. Yes. A ABC, par 100, August 1st, the company does not exist. August 2nd, it does. Yeah, simply because of the words. And How we know this. And we know this. One or two more points. I believe we live in a time of ongoing change, right? Ongoing, relentless change. So I ask a room full of people, on a scale of 1 to 10, given a background of ongoing change, how important is learning for your company? Mm -hmm. On a scale of 1 to 10. Mm -hmm. And they respond with, it's a 10. Mm -hmm. Next question, how important is learning for each of us as individuals? It's a 10. One of my favorite philosophers in this area, a guy named Eric Hoffer, uh -huh. says this, 
in times of change, those who are prepared to learn will inherit the land, while those who think they already know will find themselves wonderfully equipped to face a world that no longer exists. So true. Spectacularly prepared for yesterday. So true. And think about this. If learning is a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10 in mm -hmm. importance, right, for organizations in a time of change, one question is this. Independent of subject matter, which means learning to ride a bike, learning to rebuild a relationship, mm -hmm. learning to lead a company in times of change, what would you say, what would we say, are some of the most important prerequisites for learning that have to happen? So what has to be in place to optimize the learning, no matter what the subject matter? The attitude? Attitude is huge. Okay. Right? Attitude is huge. Also, we can talk about willingness to learn. Vulnerability, Vulnerability, perhaps. absolutely. And that vulnerability, I would offer, Reba, is in a certain area. I believe that's something called open-mindedness, mm -hmm. right? This notion, open-minded. Putting aside your ego, you mean? Absolutely. And okay. that ego, this notion of open-mindedness, for me, is kind of like an umbrella under which a lot of these other openings for learning seem to fall. And the notion is this. There is a close cousin, I believe, to open-mindedness that no matter what the subject matter is a powerful first step toward learning. And it's a step that doesn't require your legs. It's a language step. Mm. And it's when the learner thinks internally or says externally three little words, and these are, I don't know. Ah. And that's that vulnerability you're talking about. The and the humility. Absolutely. That I have yet something to Absolutely. learn. Absolutely. And when you or I think or say, I don't know, we're not describing a state of affairs mm -hmm. nearly as much as we are producing something. What we're producing is called a context or an opening for learning. Mm -hmm. Not physical, utterly real. Okay. Not physical, utterly and completely real. One question I ask groups is, how many of us here today have ever tried to teach somebody something when the learner thought they already knew it? Oh. How much learning takes place in those situations? Uh, very little, very if little, any. Very little, if any. And so this notion, now we get to talk about organizational culture. If learning is crucial in a time of change, mm -hmm. and if I don't know is important for learning, mm -hmm. the culture question is, as a leader, how do you treat people in your organization who say, I don't know? Mm -hmm. is it Are they shunned it, 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 or do you embrace? Absolutely, absolutely. I see what you're saying. Like If you see that as an admission that this person is opening themselves up for a learning experience versus... Oh, why don't they know? Absolutely. What am I paying them for? That's a totally different attitude. Very different attitude. Um, very different attitude. If, if one of the leader's desired outcomes, right, mm -hmm. is a sustainable culture of innovation and creativity, mm -hmm. and if you repeatedly slap people's hands or embarrass them every time they say they don't know, Things you're going to have a hard time achieving that result. Right? That's so true. Those are incompatible. Well, I have a question. So when you, this is so profound, the language, you talk about the language, what, in your experience as you're coaching uh, leaders, what is the most common mistake that they're making in their language? You know, some of this, I can see it in myself right back in the day. It's this terminal certainty. It, it's this, you know, at, at least one of the biggest blind spots is this, this, this notion that the way we see things is the way that they are. Mm -hmm. And Reba, for me, my, my experience, and I'm very fortunate to have spoken to these leadership peer groups mm -hmm. for years and years and years, but it's a powerful example how none of, none of us is as smart as all of us, mm -hmm. right? And these leaders bring their explanations and interpretations to the table. And by definition, they invite their colleagues to poke holes in them, Okay. right? There's a, there's a, one of the, one of the um, tee ups that I think is important for us to think about is this. We live in language, meaning you and I, we live in language. Mm -hmm. And the notion is the little voice inside 
is rarely, if ever, silent. Right? <laughs> and this little, and we live in language. And because we live in language, what we do is we are confronted, you and I, and everybody, with countless events in our lives. Events at home, events at work, mm -hmm. events with our employees, events on our team, events on the turnpike. Mm -hmm. And what we do as humans, we make up stories about these events, we hold these stories to be the truth, and mm -hmm. we forget that we made them up. Creating our own biases. Absolutely. Without even being aware of in it. In this interpretation, right? Mm -hmm. And when we use the word, when we use the word story, we don't mean fib or fabrication, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a purposeful manipulation, and it's not a self deception it's just an interpretation it's our version of the truth in that moment absolutely and it is yeah. precisely what i did not see in my yeah. mid-20s because the minute i begin living as if my explanation of the event is the event mm -hmm. i stop listening yes the reason i stop listening is i got it right what could you possibly offer me and it's this ability to hold our explanations as explanations that is the starting point, I think, for being able to be in a peer group and be able to listen to other people and listen to other people's ideas and take them on board. Well, you know, Chalmers, the thing is that we talk about the hustle, right? Um, people are cut from a certain cloth. When you are successful, define that however you would, but if you view yourself as a successful leader, somehow you've made it to the top. That kind of comes with the territory. Like, you made it there for a reason, perhaps because you do tend to make good decisions. Absolutely. So, you know, your judgment is so often right. You know, your gut is so often right. I would think that that, that is just such a natural thing for that group of people to believe that they're right. You know, I mean, so many of the decisions that they made yeah. it, it's led very them interesting. In, an, in an interesting direction that put them to the top of the pyramid. Um, how do you overcome that with uh, that group of people? I mean, people who are already successful and make good decisions in their minds. You know, there's a there's an expression, success is a learning disability. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I love right? this. Can you expand on that? Because success and, and you is ask, a learning disability. How, how can success be anything but good? What could possibly be the shadow side of success? Yes. And the notion is, I think it's, his name is Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, I love Malcolm out. Gladwell. And I think the title is What Got You Here Won't Get You won't There. Won't Get You There. Not in a time of ongoing change. Yes. Maybe back in the great, 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 great grandfather's day. Right. But not for us. Yes. And Jim Collins and his work in Good to Great oh, and, love and, that book too. and Built One to of Last, my favorites. he talks about right what we call a level five leader, right? Mm -hmm. And this is somebody, and you probably know this, with a powerful combination of incredible motivation. Yes. Commitment and ambition coupled with humility. Yes. Not either or. Right. Both and. You have to have right? both. Both and. And it's this notion in times of change, the ability to, yes, be confident in our past and acknowledge the good things that we've done, but always also understand that that things are changing and that none of us is, is as smart as all of us. And it, it's this, this capacity to declare beginnerhood into being, right? We speak it so. We speak beginnerhood into being, and in that moment, right, once we say, I don't know, same teacher, same curriculum, same environment, same situation, in that moment, something now is very likely. And mm -hmm. it's learning is much more likely than it was five seconds ago, just because my capacity, our capacity to declare ourselves beginners right. in certain situations. When you speak to these groups, Chalmers, um, 
What kind of uh, results are they seeing? What type of feedback are you hearing? Like, is it just, oh, we had this huge kumbaya moment in this peer group, we feel great, because we've seen those. Oh, we're crying, we've declared, I've been in these, right? Then you go back to same old, same old. Like, uh, are you seeing that this is really pushing the needle? I am. There are two fundamental types of outcomes that I believe all leaders are interested in achieving. Quantitative and qualitative results. Oh, yes. Can right? you talk more about so this? So quantitative please? results are things that we can measure, right? There's a, a, attainment of goals and metrics, uh, productivity and profitability and measurable market share. And qualitative results are things that are less easy to measure but still important. Things okay. like organizational culture, levels of trust and cohesion. Yes. The types of relationships you're able to form degree of innovation and creativity. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes is Albert Einstein. He says something to this effect, not everything that counts can be counted. <laughs> I love that. Right? I've never heard that before. Not everything that counts yes. can be counted. And not everything that can be counted really counts. Not everything that can Yeah. Right? And so Absolutely. as we think about organizations, I like to talk about the relationship between culture and execution. Okay. Execution can be understood to be quantitative. Mm-hmm. And culture can be understood to be qualitative. Correct. But they are clearly connected and related. And the notion is that for organizational culture, for this type of result, and Reba, it's interesting, I've been doing this work inside companies, including my days at Anderson Consulting for 36 years. I have had more conversations in the past five years with leaders about the intentional and purposeful creation of organizational culture as a competitive advantage than I have had in the first 31 years of my career combined. Southwest Airlines, I mean, that's like the case study from all our business school books that say that it's, you know, if we both invented a Coke versus Pepsi product, there's a formula that goes into it. And perhaps it could be somewhat replicated, but corporate culture is one of those things that you cannot. It's interesting. And it is an opportunity to give a business a distinct competitive advantage. It is especially so, my experience in the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of leaders' awareness right now, right, of the importance of this thing called culture on the bottom line in ways that early in my career was not happening, mm-hmm. right? And this notion of, on the execution side, right, the quantitative outcome I like to frame it this way, and now we're back to conversations again. Okay. All organizations are unique, and they're all the same, (laughs) right? What do you mean? We spoke about this earlier. So the reason I think leadership peer groups work is Mm -hmm. if you're in manufacturing and I'm in consulting and -and so-and-so is in banking and -and so-and-so is in, in retail, the reason we can learn from each other is because from a leadership standpoint, there are certain commonalities that all leaders are simply working Common with. threads. Common threads. We're all mm-hmm. working together, trying to achieve common outcomes. We all have an organizational culture that we're trying to steward and take care of. We all obviously have to have an eye on the bottom line, right? No margin, no, no mission. And the, on the execution side, one of the best lenses I was ever taught is this. When you look deeply at any organization, big or small, my wife's medical practice, General Motors, neighborhood pizza place. Mm -hmm. When you look deeply at that company, what you're going to see is that the company itself is composed of human beings Mm -hmm. who are coordinating action, but they're not coordinating action with magic. (laughs) They're coordinating action with certain types of conversations, of course. And those we call promises, commitments, or agreements. I use these words interchangeably. Okay. Organizations can be understood as a network of interdependency. Right. A network of interdependent commitments. People coming to work, making and managing promises all day long. Mm -hmm. Now, we can do this well or we can do it poorly, but we can't not do it. Okay. And to me, understanding 
at, at a base level that the company itself is composed of people who are making and managing promises all day. Mm -hmm. Now we get to talk about the nuts and bolts of execution. Are we making what in my work is called an effective request? Mm -hmm. Are we using a valid response? Mm -hmm. Are we interacting in such a way that it's clean and clear and we understand? There's a great distinction. Promises broken are not at all the same thing as silent expectations unmet. Interesting. Interesting. Promises broken, and one of my teachers said this, he said half the promises people say were never made, were never kept, were never made. Interesting. So people just have a silent expectation, of, and if it's unmet, you're saying it's as bad as a broken promise? If it's unmet, it's still going to have impacts on the culture. I'm going to be frustrated. So you have to be aware of them. Being aware of this mm -hmm. distinction, Reba, this notion that if the company itself can be understood as a network of interdependency, people mm -hmm. making and managing promises, then we can offer some tools to help people make and manage promises cleanly, clearly, consciously. Such as? Intentionally. Elements of an effective request, right? Mm -hmm. There are, and, and in the in the my work and the uh, coaching programs, I was taught if when you, when we think about the way we interact, mm -hmm. I can make I can work with you in such a way that I can I can make an effective request, and so very at a very detailed level, the elements of an effective request are a committed speaker, a committed listener, future action and conditions of satisfaction. I see. Time frame. Okay. Context and mood. Mm -hmm. And mood. And mood. The That's mood a of the request. The mood of the request. Okay. Right? The right conversation and the wrong mood is the wrong conversation. Right. How fascinating. And this notion that the way we interact, am I a committed speaker? Are mm -hmm. you a committed listener? Mm-hmm. Do I have a, a, a future action that's very clear? Mm -hmm. What are my conditions of satisfaction? Meaning that if I would see this on the back end, I would declare I'm satisfied. What's the time frame of the request? Mm -hmm. And Reba, one of the things we can look at with a request is that there's something called a background of obviousness. A background of obviousness. A background of obviousness in what the way we interact. Mean, is it possible that you and I have such a deep relationship that as an example, that our, the background of obviousness between us is so thick that I can make a request of you mm -hmm. and not include a time frame, mm -hmm. and you and I will be have shared understanding of time. Yes. Yes, absolutely, We're because we've worked together for so long, yes. we understand. But other people, we do not have that mm -hmm. background of obviousness, mm -hmm. right? In which case, if I want the same outcome, I need to be more explicit mm -hmm. with what I'm looking for. And just that type of interaction, Reba, the way that we actually interact with each other on a day-by-day -day basis, because again, virtually all activity inside a company is collaborative execution, not mm -hmm. individual execution. Mm -hmm. So many more organizations are using teams than they used to, right? That's so, right. so the ways that we work together on, on, on the valid responses, just as an example, it was taught to me this way, there are four and only four valid responses. If one of our desired outcomes is a sustainable culture of healthy accountability mm -hmm. and excellence in collaborative execution, these are yes, no, mm -hmm. commit to commit, and counter offer. Okay. Yes, no, commit to commit, and counter offer. Counter offer. offer. And so commit to commit sounds like this. You make a request to me. Uh, I say, Reba, understand, but I can't even answer you now. Mm -hmm. I need my other calendar. I mm -hmm. think I have something that week. I'll go check. And I tell you what, I'll have a yes or no by 5 p.m. today. I see. Will that work? Not, I'll get back to, to you committing. later. Not, I'll get back to you later. No, no, yes. no, no. A yes or no by 5 p.m. today. Interesting. Or, or counter offer. You may say, Chalmers, I need to have three of these done by July 1st. I can say, Reba, I understand, but I can't commit to three. I can do two, 
mm-hmm. by July 1st or three by August 1st. Mm-hmm. Counter offer. Can either of those get us to a yes here today? And those are so different than mm-hmm. responses like maybe, I'll try. Yeah. I'll get back to you Non-committal. later. Non-committal. In each of those scenarios, you're driving to a yes or no. We're driving In all to, four to of those. clarity, right? Yes. We're driving. These answers are definitive. They are definitive. That's my favorite word. Right? That's they, what's important. They are not open-ended. That's very important. And correct. what we just talked about here, right? Yes. What we just talked about is just the way that we interact with mm-hmm. each other. And that's going on over and over and over and over inside organizations every day. Mm-hmm. Every day. And so a big part of the work I do inside companies is give them new tools, right? I believe this. There are five types of core competencies required for all organizations. Okay. And it it doesn't matter. These are functional, technical, Mm -hmm. conversational, relational, and emotional. Emotional. Right? So functional competencies, technical competencies, conversational, relational, and emotional competencies. Those last three, I think, are probably the most highly ignored. It's interesting, right? (laughs) I believe this, Reba. I believe that if you look historically at which of those those competencies tend to get most people hired, Mm -hmm. right, in most industries, for most of us, it's technical and functional competencies. Get people in the door. Mm Mm-hmm. Next question is, the longer you stay with the company mm-hmm. and the higher up you progress, what will get you fired? I want to offer deficiencies in conversational, relational, and emotional competencies. Really? And these are the ones, as you move up the leadership mm-hmm. ladder, that become more and more important for shaping culture. Okay. One of that the words, sense. Right? One of the words I've seen used is, is called threshold competencies. Functional and technical competencies in some circles have become what they call threshold competencies. They meaning, only get you to a certain level, It's the correct? cost of admission. Right. It's, but to get to that next level, if you don't have Especially those. with leadership, Reba, yes. right? Not so that much with sense. technical jobs, right? So if you have a highly technical job and, and, and that's the job, that's a different animal. Mm-hmm. But when we're working in the, in the domain of leadership and teamwork, it's these conversational, relational, and emotional competencies. And making an effective request is a conversational competency. Mm-hmm. Using a valid response is a conversational competency. Mm-hmm. And so, interesting, in the, in the world of language, there's this notion that language, with language, we make visible that which was previously invisible. Interesting. So language lang- breathes it into visibility. It, it does. And one of my favorite examples is, let's pretend I'm here in D.C. with uh-huh. you. Let's pretend last night I go outside, I look up at the sky, and it's clear, and I see a bunch of stars. That's Mm -hmm. what I see Mm -hmm. is a bunch of stars. I come in here today, meet with you and John, and let's pretend that you are, in addition to being a wonderful host, you are also an amateur astronomer. Okay. And you say, Chalmers, some of those are not actually stars. They're planets, and they have a reddish hue and a little bit yellow sometimes. And some of those are what we call a nebula. And it's got this fuzzy kind of faint, looks like a ring almost from these gases from millions of years ago. And some of those are man-made satellites. And if you look, they can be said to track very slowly. Mm-hmm. I go out tonight, Reba, and I look up at the same sky. What might I see tonight? I might see planets. I might see nebula. Now you know so, so much more of what you're looking at, as, what the canvas holds. Absolutely. Because somebody took the time to Ex- and these distinctions, color into it. right? Stars, planets, and nebula mm-hmm. are distinctions in the domain of astronomy. Mm-hmm. So you give me new distinctions in a different in a domain. You give me new distinctions in the domain of forestry. My mm-hmm. next walk in the woods is different. Right. You give me new distinctions in the domain of astronomy. My next look at the sky is different. Mm-hmm. In my work, I don't deal with astronomy or forestry. 
but I offer distinctions in the domain of language mm -hmm. so that when leaders go back to their organizations, they can see what they didn't see before, meaning I can now see people making an ineffective request. Yes. And I can intervene in a way that I used to not be intervened because I, one of my teachers said this, you cannot intervene in a world that you do not see. So true. <laughs> right? And so it's interesting. Just the awareness. The awareness and new distinctions, Reba. Mm -hmm. You give me new distinctions in the domain of of TV studios, right? The next time I walk into a TV studio, I'll see what I didn't see before. Mm -hmm. And because I see what I didn't see before, I can maybe do what I couldn't do before in that domain. Mm -hmm. And so with leaders, they're working in the domain of leadership, the domain of corporate culture, the domain of relationships, the domain of collaborative execution for profitable outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so all of my work and all the distinctions I share, all the tools are in that domain. Right, to help help them see what they didn't see, again, to become a more powerful, more competent observer right. of themselves in that area. It's fascinating because I imagine that some of these leaders that you work with walk away, and it probably helps their personal lives just as much as it helps their business lives. This is, um, of all the, and again, I do tons of organizational work, right? Mm -hmm. And I share with people, I say, listen, of all the topics you get from a corporate training program, mm -hmm. of all the topics... Today's topic has direct relevance, not just at work, but at home as well. So please listen on purpose so you can take it there. Because when we talk about language and self-awareness and conversations and relationships, mm -hmm. we're talking about ourselves and our own personal lives, right? We, there's this, there's a, a distinction, Reba, and it's this. The difference between conversational context mm -hmm. and conversational content. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. The context... There is a, a, the reason, and you mentioned early on, you know, what are some of the outcomes when people work with me? Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the clear outcomes, predictable outcomes, is the number of avoided conversations goes down. Interesting. And the reason, I believe, many of us avoid conversations that we consider difficult or challenging is we don't know how to start them. Yes. Right? We don't know how to start we them. We view them as a conflict, so we don't we even touch it. view them as a conflict, as a, as a confrontation. We avoid it for we that avoid reason. It. We avoid it. And the quality of your organizational outcomes mm -hmm. is a direct consequence of the quality of your conversations. Okay. <laughs> no ifs, ands, or buts. The quality of your outcomes as an organization is directly connected to the quality of your conversations. And there's an interesting, interesting question. How many conversations, number one, are held in a workplace setting mm -hmm. only because a previous conversation did not produce the desired outcome? How interesting. And are there missing conversations? Right. Are there missing conversations on your team? Are there missing conversations in, on your onboarding? We'll be back with more East Coast Hustle with your host, Reba Magulik, after this brief timeout. For all of my friends in the government contracting business, I want to tell you about a company I know well, led by one of our guests on East Coast Hustle, Kevin Fitzpatrick at GovTech. Kevin and his team are experts in liability issues that face the GovCon industry. Now, back to East Coast Hustle with your host, Reba Magula, and today's special guest, Chalmers Brothers. 
It's just like when you end up having um, cultures that are too heavy, we call them over-meetinged, right? And the meetings aren't producing any results. They aren't. Oh, customer's angry. That's it, guys. We're going to have a meeting every single week to address right. this. But had we been able to uh, forego or, or avoid that customer issue, there would be no need for all these meetings. And it sounds like these meetings aren't being effective to begin with. They often the aren't. Game. And I think what happens is we, we avoid conversations at meetings. We avoid conversations with external, you know, mm -hmm. with customers. One of the best distinctions I was ever taught is a term called carefrontation. What, could you repeat that? Carefrontation. 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 Okay. Now, carefrontation is a particular <laughs> conversational context I like that. in which I care enough about you, Reba, to initiate a conversation with you that in this moment, I'm not 100% sure how it's going to go. I care more about you and your career progression as my direct report, or I yes. care more about you and the goals that you've set than I do about my hands not sweating. Interesting. And carefrontation is a powerful, again, a conversational competency, yes. is when... I want to have a carefrontational conversation with you. I speak into my concerns. Mm -hmm. If I have a background concern running around up here, mm -hmm. right, and often I do, because if I've avoided the conversation with you, there was something there. There was something there. Yeah. That concern lives as an internal narrative. Right. If my big eye self awareness is turned on enough that I can articulate you for can myself what that internal narrative is about yes. this conversation, that's what we speak out loud out up front. Reba. I have a concern that a conversation I want to have with you may not come out right. I have a concern, number one, that some of the goals that you've set are not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Also, if I'm honest, I have a concern that if I talk to you about this, you might quit. Mm -hmm. And I do not want you to quit, not in this economy. Mm -hmm. But the status quo can't continue. Mm -hmm. And so I need to have a conversation with you. I'm just not exactly sure the best way to have it. Or I can say, Reba, let me start here. I value our relationship. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing I would ever do to damage that. But I, I'm just struggling to find a way to have a conversation with you. And Reba, what we just did there is all context, not content. Interesting. Right? I haven't even you haven't even gotten. To I the haven't gotten yet. to the content. But what a great way to set up that conversation. And I love that it's called carefrontation. Just even that shifts the paradigm. It does. Because when I'm thinking about it, a, a confrontation. Different. I'm going to avoid the heck out of that. But to change that, to say, wait a minute, no. By having this conversation, I'm actually demonstrating care towards you. If I didn't care about you, yeah. I would not have the conversation. Exactly. And I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. <laughs> it was taught to me by some guys way smarter than me. But it has stuck with me. And, and you mentioned personal life. How many of us have kids, let's say, over the age of 12, 13, 14? And I asked, I asked people this. I said, look, as a parent of kids once they get to be a certain age, have we as parents not had to have conversations with them every now and then mm -hmm. that we never had to have when they were four? That's right, yeah. And carefrontation has served me as a dad. Yes. It's served me as a husband. It's served me as a coach, as a consultant, right? This capacity, and if we could dramatically minimize the number of avoided conversations, what would that do for our organizational performance? What would it do for our most important relationships? Mm -hmm. I believe this. The purposeful creation of conversational context mm -hmm. is a foundational leadership competency. Mm. I believe the purposeful creation of conversational context is also a foundational relationship competency. That makes right? a lot of good sense. And this notion, and what I invite people to do, I say, look, if you have a difficult conversation on your plate, right? And I say that, look, if you have an easy conversation scheduled, go have it because it's easy. Mm -hmm. However, if you have a difficult conversation on your plate, I invite people to think this way in terms of how they prepare. Mm -hmm. Number one, can we acknowledge that there are no guarantees in any conversation?
No matter what you do on the front end, there's no ironclad guarantee. Okay, check. Got mm-hmm. it. Number one. Number two, what can I therefore do in tomorrow's conversation such that no matter what the ultimate outcome does turn out to be, I will have the fewest regrets? I like that. Interesting. Right? Yeah. And so when we frame it that way, almost always what comes up is, and you mentioned vulnerability or authenticity, I'm going to be authentic, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to say, Reba, I need to have a conversation with you and I don't know how to have it. And I ask people, how many of us have ever been on the receiving end of this type of authenticity? Well, many hands go up. I say, what's it like? And the word that they often say is it's disarming. It, it is, is dis- disarming. It's disarming. Just even hearing you say that, even though it was an example, it puts me in a different mood to hear what you're about to say a, next. A different place, a yeah. different place. And so. My invitation to people I work with all the time is if you have a difficult conversation on your plate, number one, understand that you are a conversational architect. Mm -hmm. Number two, explicitly separate conversational context from the content content in your Mm -hmm. preparation and separate context from content in the actual conversation. Mm I'm learning so much here. It's just like you described of the stars. Now I am seeing it and so much aware, and I'll be so much more aware of it. I love this, Reba, because <laughs> now what happens is a leader can see somebody in a conversation and think, oh, that guy did not set context at all. Right. Where before there was just two people talking. Right. So these distinctions, and this leads us to another distinction, and which is what I did not understand in my mid-20s, is that we are each unique observers. Mm-hmm. By definition, Reba, we are unique observers. If we took a tour of this building mm-hmm. with everybody who's working here today, and we stayed together on the tour, mm-hmm. stayed together, stayed together, stayed together, and now we're back in the room, and the tour guide said, what did you notice on the tour? How many different responses is a tour guide gonna get? How many of us went on the tour? Right. And this happens every time. And the question is, did one of us observe right and everyone else observe wrong? No, we are simply unique observers by definition. That's the starting point, right? For all the collaborative action we have to do inside our company, mm-hmm. that's the starting point for all relationships. When leaders are running a meeting, and I invite them to look, I say, look, when you're running a meeting, you know who you have in front of you at your meeting? You have human beings right there who are profoundly and utterly not you. (laughs) And they are valid expressions of what it means to be human. And it's incredible how much they are not you. Mm -hmm. Now let's go forth and build shared understanding. Now let's go forth and build shared commitment. Yes, but the starting point is they are not you. And this notion that we are unique observers, which I believe we are, a follow-on question is, are you, however, the same observer today? that you were when you were 17 years old? Clearly not. Clearly not. And it's interesting, right? The observer that we, and I say, I'm not either. How did that change take place? Was it one morning in 2020, you woke up and whoosh, everything was different? (laughs) No. How did the change happen? It's every moment, Mm -hmm. every moment. So Reba, I believe this. Maybe the term human being isn't as appropriate as human becoming. Oh, I love that. I've never heard that before. Think about this. We yes, are you are human becoming. We are human becomings. We are each and constantly in my evolving. in my constantly in my workshops I say this. One of my explicit objectives everybody is that you will leave this program a different observer than when you started. Mm-hmm. You will be a different observer of yourself, a different observer of other people's interactions, a different observer of how your organization creates outcomes. Mm-hmm. Right? Explicitly. One of my primary objectives is to help you become a more powerful observer, a more competent observer. And this 
notion that we are unique observers and that the observer we are is not fixed and permanent. Right? Right. We're in an ongoing process of growing and evolving and becoming. Mm-hmm. This, to me, is a powerful or much more powerful orientation, I believe, than we're born kind of fixed and permanent and then life becomes a process of trying to, quote, discover who you already objectively are. Yes. As opposed to life is a process of each of us becoming a new observer, a more powerful observer, growing and evolving and becoming. And life, therefore, is much more about purposely creating the next best version of us. This is so profound. As opposed to this notion that we're already fixed and permanent. This is so profound. This is amazing. We'll be back with more East Coast Hustle with your host, Reba Magulik, after this brief timeout. On this show, I never promote executive leaders and companies that I don't know well. My friends and colleagues at Accelerate Solutions are truly gifted experts across the company's three service areas, enterprise security, digital transformation, and strategic consulting. Accelerate optimizes efficiency and effectiveness and enhances the security of America's physical and cyber infrastructure, as well as personnel. Agencies as large, complex, and important as the FBI depend on Accelerate. To learn more, visit AccelerateSolutions.com. That's X-C-E-L-E-R-A-T-E Solutions.com. Now, back to East Coast Hustle with your host, Reba Magulik, and today's special guest, Chalmers Brothers. For many of our listeners today, they're going to want to know, how can they engage with you? How can people learn more? I mean, we're here in D.C. Central. We have a lot of government contracting firms and other businesses in the area. A lot of peer groups out there oh, that I think could benefit from this. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, my website is uh, chalmersbrothers.com. And so on there, there's access to my books. And the books are available pretty widely as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, before COVID hit, I had no videos on my website. Okay. Now I have nine. <laughs> They're each between 45 and 90 minutes long. And so they each cover a particular aspect. One's very much about accountability. One mm-hmm. is listening versus hearing. There's emotional intelligence and trust. There's looking at the power of language and conversations. And Mm so um, most of the chapters in the book are also represented by videos on the website. Excellent. I'll just close out with one last question. And that is, um, of course, now I don't know if we're past it or not. But during the pandemic, how did this change the rules of the game of communication? Did it make it worse? Because you've got some folks that don't have their camera on. And uh, you, you, you are absent body language and other cues. You know, the, the strongest organizations I know are purposeful about the media they use to, to interact. Okay. Right? I Meaning, if the purpose of the interaction is to widely disseminate information accurately, then email is great. Mm-hmm. But email is a terrible tip of the spear if one of the desired outcomes is shared understanding. Oh, yes. Right? And so with COVID, right, I was thrown into it like everybody else. I had very little history doing anything on video. I got my feet wet very quickly and did as well as I could in the video world. But to me, as long as I can see you mm-hmm. and see your body, right? Mm-hmm. I read somewhere 14% of the meaning that we make in a conversation is based on the words. Only 14%? Only 14 Now, I have no idea how they quantify that, right? But, <laughs> but, but such a small... But such a small percent. So whatever right. it is, it's small. So yes. that means, right? People believe what they see. People believe what they see. And your, my ability to make meaning, right? 
and to make meaning in a way that is consistent with your intention, the body language, the nonverbals, the mood, the tone, that is huge. Yes. Right? So uh, this notion that we are constantly trying to make sense of things, uh, you know, human beings are addicted to meaning, right? An event happens, and that's not the end of it. It's the beginning. What does it mean? So in these conversations, if I can see you and hear you and do the body language and get the tone, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't find that much of a drop-off from being in the room in terms of one-to-one. So like if I'm doing one-to-one coaching with yes. somebody and it's you and I on the screen, I'm looking at you, I don't find that to be that different than, than being with you in person. In a group setting, I do find it uh, to be different, that working with a group of people, it's more difficult to, I think, engage. It's more mm-hmm. difficult to read the room and to make sure that we're actually on the same page. Right. Um, and I, I do think there has been a semi-permanent shift, though, in that video conferencing in a way that we're now seeing it, to some extent, is not going to go back to the way it was. Mm-hmm. I, I just believe that, that there's, a, there's enough economies of scale and there's enough value in doing it that some companies, like myself, I mean, I've, I've, I've learned that I can actually do some stuff on video that I didn't used to think I could. So while, while I think there are some, some drawbacks, I do think there's been a semi-permanent shift yes. in, in usage. I agree. Gosh, Chalmers, thank you so much. This has been so, so valuable. And I know for those of us who watch and listen to this show, uh, it's about the hustle which is being busy and moving and and motion, but how important to pause. That's what I take away from this. I'm like, I need to pause and sharpen the skill set, sharpen the tool set based on what you've said. I need to pay attention to language because really that just uh, makes me more effective, makes me better at the end game that I'm trying to accomplish. That's not the only reason you should go about it. Right. But, you know, you triggered a thought. One, one last thought. I'm a power of language guy through and through. Right. Language in the pursuit of happiness, language in the pursuit of leadership excellence. I now believe, Reba, there's another type of power available to us by getting out of language, by periodically giving it a rest. <laughs> right? I mean that. Silence. Some sort of silence. <laughs> yes. Some sort of, some sort of practice of silence. Some, and again, some people find it walking. Some people find it in yoga. Some people find meditation. it in, in sitting meditation. But I now believe there's a time to be externally focused and there's a time to be quiet. There's a time to be externally focused and a time to be quiet. And I believe I can be more present with you Mm -hmm. if I have practiced being more present with myself. Mm. And for me, being quiet has the experience of me being present with myself in such a way that I think I'm better when I re-engage in the world at being present with other people. That makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. It's like recharging your batteries, reevaluating yourself. I like you should sharpen the saw. Right? Yes. I like that term. Yes, absolutely. Like Chowers, wonderful. Thank you so much. It's my Loved pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank <laughs> you.